0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com/give.
1: Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. I'm Noel Heaster Crow and I'm Tom Crow. Today, we've got the story of a truly amazing man. Given everything that he did, it's actually really shocking that his name isn't more familiar to us in this country. John Dubois was the founder of Mount St. Mary's Seminary. He was the third bishop of New York. And he was friends with some of the most recognizable people in American and French history in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Yeah,
0: John Dubois is probably the most important American Catholic from the early part of our history that practically no one has ever heard of. Why don't more people know about him? Well, probably in part because a large chunk of the Catholics in New York disliked him. We'll talk about why later, but when he died, his own flock let him just dissolve into obscurity. Plus, his successor was larger than life, so the unassuming Frenchman was easily forgotten.
1: All right, we'll get to those events of his later life, but let's start at the beginning. Jean Dubois was born in France.
0: He was born in Paris in 1764. He was educated at home until he went to college at Lycée Louis le Grand. It was at Louis le Grand that his accidental associations with some of the most important figures of American and French history of the late 18th and early 19th century began. Among his schoolmates at Louis le Grand were Maximilien Robespierre, Camille Desmoulins, and Jean Louis Cheveroux. Robespierre and Desmoulins, of course, both played major roles in the bloody and anti Catholic French Revolution.
1: And Chevereux eventually became the first bishop of Boston before being the Cardinal Archbishop of Bordeaux. So
0: after college, Dubois was ordained a priest in 1787 and assigned to the parish of saint sulpice in Paris.
1: He was also named chaplain to the Sisters of Charity, St. Vincent de Paul's order, and this will become important later. Right.
0: The thing about his life is that so many threads just weave back together. So Dubois wasn't in these roles long before the French Revolution kicked off and the blood started flowing from Madame Guillotine. Religious orders were dissolved and monks and nuns were ordered to go be civilians once again. Bishops and priests were required to renounce their connection to Rome and swear an oath of loyalty to the new French government. Those many thousands who refused were exiled or, much more frequently, executed. The writing was on the wall. Father Dubois, who could not take the oath, had to get out of France or lose his head.
1: And this is where his friendship with one of his old schoolmates came in very handy.
0: Right. Robespierre, who was directly responsible for so much of the bloodshed and who was so involved in suppressing the church, assisted in spiriting his old friend, Father Dubois, out of Paris and onto a ship bound for America.
1: But Robespierre wasn't the only prominent Frenchman who helped Dubois.
0: No. Dubois came across the ocean bearing letters of introduction from none other than the Marquis de Lafayette to a couple of the Marquis's American friends, James Monroe and Patrick Henry, among others. It seems that one of Dubois's parishioners at Peace was Lafayette's wife.
1: Nice way to be introduced.
0: Seriously. So with the letters of introduction from the Marquis de Lafayette in hand, he landed at Norfolk in 1791 and went to live at James Monroe's house near Charlottesville, Virginia, where Patrick Henry came by to help him learn English. After a while, he became active in Richmond, teaching French, arithmetic, and classics, and offering Mass in rented spaces. At one point, he actually celebrated Mass in the new statehouse in Richmond at the invitation of the General Assembly.
1: And that was no small matter. Virginia had a strong anti-Catholic history, and the Episcopalian Church had only recently been disestablished. Right.
0: Then, in 1794, John Carroll, Bishop of Baltimore, assigned Dubois to take on missionary work in the mountainous region of western Maryland, south-central Pennsylvania, and northern Virginia. He established the parish of St. John in Frederick, Maryland, and made it his base. But in 1806, his life took another dramatic and incredibly important turn. He joined the Order of Saint Peace, an order which exists to train priests. Many seminaries, including St. Mary's in Baltimore, the first seminary in the United States, were founded and are run by Sulpicians. So Dubois moved north, just a couple miles shy of the Pennsylvania state line, to Emmitsburg, Maryland.
1: Emmitsburg is an interesting story all by itself, which we will talk about in a future episode. It was settled as a bit of a Catholic refuge, and Father Dubois liked the opportunity to be in a Catholic community there.
0: Right. And just outside of town, on the mountain dubbed Mount St. Mary, Dubois established a petite seminary in 1808. The idea was that Mount St. Mary's would be a feeder school to prepare men to study theology at St. Mary's.
1: But that's not how it played out.
0: No. Early on, in order to keep the doors open due to the dearth of vocations, he began accepting non-seminary students, and then, by the early 1820s, he determined that the fit with the Sulpicians wasn't working. He received permission to train students right on through their theological studies, so he left the Sulpicians and made his seminary an independent school under the Archbishop of Baltimore. From that point until 2005, it was Mount St. Mary's Seminary and College, and since 2005, it is known as Mount St. Mary's University. As of today, the Mount, as it is called, boasts more than 2,000 priest graduates and 28 bishops who have served in dioceses across the country and around the world. The Mount, and therefore John Dubois, has had a significant impact on the church hierarchy and priesthood.
1: You're very familiar with Mount St. Mary's as you spent some time there.
0: I did. Three incredible years of growth, two years of pre-theology and one and then first theology. I was actually there during the bicentennial celebrations. And as part of those festivities, a dramatic statue of John Dubois was dedicated. It depicts Dubois raising a cross, which he had done high on the mountainside above the seminary as a place of prayer, close to where now is the National Shrine Grotto of Lords. There is so, so much interesting Catholic history in this place that we will devote at least one more episode to it.
1: At least. Now, another bit of American Catholic history at Mount St. Mary's was the arrival of widow, mother, and foundress, Elizabeth Ann Seton. Right. In
0: 1809, Mother Seton came to Emmitsburg at Father Dubois' invitation. He supported her in establishing the first school for girls in the country, St. Joseph Academy, and in establishing her religious order, the Daughters of Charity, which, under his guidance, was modeled on the Sisters of Charity, for whom he had served as chaplain back in Paris.
1: The Daughters of Charity were the first religious community founded in the United States, and when she established St. Joseph, Mother Seton effectively founded the parochial school system in this country. Right,
0: and those things happened under the guidance and with the support of Father John
1: Dubois. And it was in Emmitsburg that Mother Seton and Father Dubois met another figure who would also make a great impact on the church, John Hughes. Yes,
0: John Hughes, another figure who will get his own episode. Without telling too much here, he applied to be a student at Mount St. Mary's but wasn't a great student, so he wasn't accepted. Father Dubois did hire him as a gardener, however. He became good friends with Mother Seton, who was impressed with him, and she pressed Father Dubois to reconsider Hughes's application.
1: And it's a good thing too, because Hughes would eventually become Bishop Dubois' coadjutor bishop and eventually his successor in New York. And from there, he would change the church in the U.S. significantly.
0: Yes. And that leads into what could be considered the fourth act of John Dubois' life.
1: Right. If escaping the French Revolution with the help of Robespierre was Act One, living with James Monroe and learning English from Patrick Henry and getting established in the U.S. was Act Two, establishing Mount St. Mary's and aiding Mother Seton was Act Three. then Act Four is all about being the third bishop of New York, fighting trusteeism and lay Irish power brokers, and building the church in that growing city.
0: Right. In 1826, despite his reluctance, he accepted the appointment to be the third bishop of New York. He was actually recommended for the post by Father Anthony Coleman S.J., the former administrator of New York, whom we talked about in Episode 2 of this podcast, and who, at this point, was teaching at the Gregorian University in Rome.
1: His new position was perhaps the greatest challenge of his life for two main reasons. One, because of ineffective Episcopal leadership from his predecessors, and two, because he was French.
0: Yes. See, the bishops of New York hadn't had much of an impact to this point. The diocese had been established in 1808. The first bishop, Luke Concanon, Never actually made it to New York, dying in Naples, Italy, in 1810, before he could board a ship to come take possession of his sea. The second, John Connolly, wasn't appointed until 1815, five years later. He was a gentle and mild mannered man who built some churches and orphanages, cared for the sick and poor, and he brought in the Daughters of Charity, a reminder that's the order Mother Sedan founded with Father Dubois' help, but he really didn't take on the layman who ran the show in most of the parishes. So basically, since the diocese was erected in 1808, it had been run by administrators, including Father Coleman, and a bunch of lay trustees.
1: And about the French part?
0: Yes, well, the majority of his flock was Irish, and they thought that the Irish-born John Power, who was Vicar General and who had been Apostolic Administrator during the Interregnum, should have been named Bishop. So this Frenchman with the thick accent seemed like a foreigner. His appointment didn't sit well with the Irish leaders at all.
1: And their opposition must have been noted because to this day, Dubois is the only non-Irish bishop or archbishop of New York.
0: It's kind of remarkable.
1: Yeah, those Irishmen.
0: Yeah, Yeah, we're awesome. So he takes possession (laughs) of his new see, New York. He has 18 priests, 12 churches, 150,000 Catholics, and it's all spread out over the whole state of New York and half of New Jersey. He went to Europe in 1829 to try to recruit priests and secure support. He received plenty of financial support, but no priests heeded his call. He tried to establish a seminary in his diocese, but the first one burned down soon after it was built. Another was planned in Brooklyn, but never happened, and a third was begun, but it was so far north, even further north than Albany, that it was abandoned. He did see the number of priests triple during his tenure, however, and the number of churches quadrupled. He built orphanages, helped the Daughters of Charity establish the first parish elementary school renovated and expanded the cathedral on Mulberry Street, and more. And he did it all in the face of trusteeism.
1: Okay, trusteeism is a major element in the early church in America, and we could and probably will spend a whole episode just on it. But let's just give a thumbnail sketch. Often churches were built by laymen putting forth the money to build a church independent of the bishop or priest being involved they would then be the trustees of that church. Right,
0: and since they controlled the money and frequently owned the land and the church building, they asserted that they had rights to make major decisions concerning that church, including who would be the pastor. The trustees very frequently didn't care at all what the bishop had to say on the matter and cared even less what the pastor said unless he tried to assert his authority against them, in which case they would fire him. One parish in Greenwich Village, which is a part of Manhattan, hired and dismissed four pastors in just three years in the 1830s. This was while Dubois was bishop.
1: Many of these trustees were among those who had wanted their man, John Power, to be made bishop.
0: The fight with trustees was also trying because it came at a time when the anti-Catholic secular authorities were beginning to agitate against Catholics more and more. The number of Catholics, especially in cities, was growing dramatically through immigration, and the Catholic immigrants were frequently poorly educated, malnourished, brought over other problems with them. So Dubois was facing disobedience from within and bigotry from without. In 1837, at 73 years old, Bishop Dubois, who was tired and of failing health, requested a coadjutor bishop. Once again, many of the faithful of New York expected John Power to be named, but Pope Gregory XVI made a better choice.
1: Father John Hughes, the former pupil of John Dubois and friend of Mother Seton.
0: Yes, he who would become known as Dagger John, who would build the new St. Patrick's Cathedral, and who would become the greatest defender of the rights of the Church of his day. But he was also a leader in breaking the back of trusteeism, and he started that trend while Dubois was still bishop. See, in 1839, shortly after Hughes was consecrated, Dubois fired the catechist at the Cathedral Parish. The trustees of the Cathedral Parish liked that catechist, so they rehired him and threatened to cut off Bishop Dubois's salary and all material support. Dubois stood his ground that the man should be fired regardless of what the trustees did to him. He said to them in reply, I am an old man and do not need much. I can live in a basement or in a garret, but whether I come up from the basement or down from the garret, I shall still be your bishop.
1: Still not in French.
0: I still didn't say it in French, no. (laughs) So Bishop John Hughes, on the other hand, defended his old teacher who was now his spiritual father once again. Hughes, who was a gifted orator called together 600 of the rough-and-tumble Irish parishioners and gave an impassioned speech. He actually likened the trustees to the British who had ruled and oppressed the Irish back home for centuries, and he said that the sainted spirits of the Congregant's ancestors would disown them if they did not support Bishop Dubois. Bishop Dubois won this round through his unlikely protege.
1: Bishop John Dubois' health began to fail in 1839, and he asked that Bishop Hughes be made administrator he died in eighteen forty two at seventy-eight years old, and he is buried at the basilica of old St. Patrick's Cathedral. But you will not find him in the graveyard nor inside the church. Bishop John Dubois is buried under the flagstone walkway leading to the main doors of the church because, as he said in his last days, bury me where the people will walk over me in death as they wished to do in life. Today there is a plaque in the walkway marking the spot where this man, quiet and unknown, but who was involved in, and sometimes central to, so many other major stories of his day, is buried. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, Please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History. Or follow Starquest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on Starquest.